Kagan Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Neva, the editor-in-chief of the journal. We've come today with great anticipation of an opportunity to speak with Helen Nolan, who is head of education quality and an associate professor at Warwick Medical School. Along with Leslie Roberts, Helen has a paper coming out in the November 2021 issue of Medical Education entitled Medical Educators' Views and Experiences of Trigger Warnings in Teaching Sensitive Content. Helen, thanks for joining today, and I'm very much looking forward to speaking about your paper with you. Thanks very much, Kevin. It's a privilege. This is something that I was particularly eager to talk about because it has become such a dominant thing, for lack of a better word, in popular media, in a variety of places that trigger warnings are provided. I imagine that many of our listeners won't be fully familiar with the concept, though, because it isn't something that I've seen represented in our literature before. So I think I'd need to start by just asking you to define and clarify what a trigger warning is and what you thought is relevant to medical education might be. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a really pertinent question to start off with. So a trigger warning is generally considered to be an advance caution or advisory, be that either written or verbal, in advance of content that the recipient may feel would be emotionally challenging or distressing. And as you've mentioned, we encounter them pretty widely nowadays in mainstream media and social media as well. And there appears to be an increasing move, and there are varying opinions around the suitability of this, but an increasing move to have their inclusion in educational settings as well. And what would you describe as the goal of offering these things? What is the theory behind making them a priority? That's such an interesting question, actually, particularly in the current context, as it's something that has evolved so much from their original beginnings and underpinnings. I guess they take their origins from psychology setting, whereby a trigger is something that is likely to arouse unpleasant symptoms or stress in an individual who has past experiences usually associated with trauma. So like PTSD, And traditionally, they were associated with a relatively small number of other psychological health conditions. So the trigger warning, the intention was that by issuing this to the recipient, you could potentially avoid some of that hyper arousal that was associated with it. And they gained prominence online, originally in feminist blog culture. But as I've mentioned, their use has become much more prevalent and widespread. And in your medical school, is there a policy that these things should be offered? How are they typically provided in your setting? So we don't actually have a firm policy or any very rigid requirements around use of trigger warnings. It was something that I discovered coming through in student feedback, actually. I have a quality leadership role at the medical school. And we have very robust mechanisms in place to capture student voice and student feedback. It underpins and is integral to how we deliver our curriculum at the medical school. So 
I began to notice just sporadic references from students about requests for trigger warnings and suggestions that they might be used more consistently. It wasn't the case that this was an overarching theme in student feedback or that it was a unanimous request. There were more sort of sporadic, as I've said, or individual comments from time to time. So that's how my interest actually developed in the area. To answer your original question, we don't have any requirements. They're not mandated for use, but it is something that particularly as a consequence of this study that we've given a lot more thought to as to how we can address the needs of students. And I think that is probably the case for a lot of other institutions that have started this conversation in the UK, that there would be guidelines that educators and faculty can refer to. But I think it's rarely the case that it is mandated. And so with this particular study that you just alluded to, the goal you stated in the paper is to explore medical educators' views and experiences of managing distressing situations, specifically their use of trigger warnings. How did you identify people who would be particularly good informants around this topic? As I've outlined in the paper, I was interested in the experience of early years medical educators where education is more classroom-based delivery. Obviously, our curriculum is an integrated one and students have early clinical exposure from the inception of the programme. However, there is a larger proportion of time spent in classroom-based education in year one of the four-year programme. And by classroom-based education, that can include anything from case-based learning, small group learning, around values, law and ethics, lecture-based learning, clinical skills sessions. So that's just a wide term I use to capture all of that. So it was educators in our faculty who had recent experience of delivering education to usually year one medical students and were familiar with the curriculum because I figured that was the setting in which it was most likely trigger warnings or any kind of warnings would be used. And I can easily imagine many different topics where trigger warnings could be relevant given that it is necessary to cover some very distressing things in one's medical training. Were there particular subject areas or topics that these seem to be used more extensively? As part of our sampling strategy, we didn't have any strongly preconceived ideas of where they should be used within the sample that I've already described. We wanted to speak to educators quite broadly, actually, and we didn't have strongly held ideas about what disciplines or what subject areas they should or shouldn't be used in. That was something that we wanted to explore, the experiences that educators have had and where they might have found them necessary. So that allowed us to identify areas that were unforeseen or things that we hadn't previously considered. You asked whether there were particular areas where they were noted. I guess in participants' responses, they suggested a variety of subject areas that could be potentially distressing for students, but there was consensus in relation to certain topics, for example, in relation to areas of mental health, suicide, issues around inequalities and racial discrimination as well. Those were some of the examples that were cited more commonly. And of course, breaking bad news as well in communication skills training. And what did they find the effect, positive or negative, to be of offering these warnings in their efforts to do so? 
one of the questions that we included was to ask whether they had experienced any direct feedback from either students or peers, so other members of the teaching team or faculty. And in general, actually, most participants commented that they hadn't received any direct feedback. So I guess in one sense, it was perhaps difficult for the participants to evaluate what the response had been. Occasionally, participants voiced the experience that they had implemented use of warnings reactively. So previous where they'd had an experience in a teaching session with an individual or individuals becoming distressed, perhaps, or letting them know afterwards that this might have been an appropriate step to take to forewarn students about particular content. And this was a reactive mechanism in those cases. But participants were able to articulate a number of different and sometimes overlapping reasons or intentions for their use of warnings in the education setting. And when they were led to implement these things, did it seem to resolve some of the issues that had led them to those reactions in the first place? Was the general feeling of those who did try to use trigger warnings that they provided value to their teaching? Yes, I think that was clear that that was the case and that I've mentioned that there were a variety of aims and reasons why they used warnings beyond simply preventing distress or that hyper arousal that we alluded to at the start of the conversation, that there were a whole variety of other reasons why they used them. So, for example, as a means to inform and empower students in taking responsibility for their own learning and how they approached learning as a means to enhance self-awareness and to allow them to reflect on areas or topics that might be particularly sensitive or potentially distressing to them. They also described using them as a tool to moderate the learning environment or to create a particular climate, I guess, in a session. So actually setting an expectation for respectful debate, highlighting to students that their views may be challenged, but it will be done in a respectful way. So those were just you know, some of the reasons. They also use them to serve a pedagogical function for other unaffected students. So individuals for whom the content wasn't likely to provoke distress to them, but actually to raise awareness amongst them that actually there could be others in the group for whom this is really challenging. And again, setting that expectation for sensitive communication and embedding empathy as well. Yeah, I can imagine that those who are conscious of these issues and trying to set that tone of sensitive communication are unlikely to fall into this trap. But any strategy like this inevitably gets used by some as an algorithm or recipe book. It's something that they have to do in order to be felt to be teaching well. Is there a risk in some people potentially just offering a trigger warning at the start and then feeling like their job? is done and really doesn't change the tone of the conversation? And if so, how would you advise going about managing how to use trigger warnings effectively? Yeah, again, another really pertinent question in relation to the data that we collected. So as I indicated in the paper, participants generally indicated that this was something that they did. However, there was no participant that didn't have a concern or didn't express some conflict or tension around this practice. So they certainly 
didn't view it as being a simple solution or a panacea that took care of all of the considerations in creating an educational environment in a session or addressed all of their responsibilities as an educator. And that situation that you've just described was some of the reluctance that was voiced by particular participants so that actually they didn't want to see this as just being simply a label that was put on over some content and that addressed all of that issue. They wanted it's to also highlight to students that actually it's okay if you've had a response emotionally to a particular topic or to a particular session, that's all right. That doesn't necessarily mean that something has gone wrong or that something's amiss. They didn't wish to pathologize the response that students were experiencing. And it was very important to many of the participants to ensure that there were signposting supports or signposting self-care strategies that students could utilize to manage the response that they were having. So they certainly didn't see it as being something that's sort of open and shut. I'm going to use this warning and that's going to take care of everything. It was often a way to facilitate discussion, to, you know, precipitate reflection amongst students and to really increase self-awareness. Well, and that feeds very well into my last question, which otherwise takes us back to the beginning of this conversation, because I'm still thinking about what policy should be. You mentioned that work mm. doesn't have one, but that this paper has prompted some conversations about whether or not there should be one. And I'm just curious as to your opinion on what medical schools should make their policy in this regard. Such a good question. And one would like to think that we would have a clearer way forward having undertaken this research. I think there are still some unknowns and uncertainties in relation to this contentious topic. However, I think some of the messages that are coming through increasingly in trauma-informed approaches to medical education and some of the frameworks that have been proposed there offer some useful food for thought and solutions. So including ensuring that students are educated about trauma as a clinical entity so that they you know, appreciate the epidemiology, physiology and effects of trauma, as well as developing trauma-informed self-care skills. I think it's also important that on the less severe end of the spectrum that students appreciate the distinction between trauma and stress or eustress, which can actually be a beneficial, motivating experience for learners so that they're clear about the distinction between those two things. I think that those aren't necessarily steps that you can institute right from day one of a medical student's experience in medical school. And there need to be other measures in the interim. So, for example, always ensuring that there is visible and accessible support available to students and that we continue to support students in self-care and developing reflective capacity. I think those are undeniably really important strategies in terms of warnings specifically. I think overarching messages at the point of induction and repeated throughout a learner's journey about the fact that experiences in medical education may likely provoke distress from time to time. And again, that's not necessarily an indicator that something has gone wrong. It's to be expected and that within the medical school community support is available. I think that there is a role for content statements and content overviews. So providing students with objective information about the content that they will encounter at various times and framing those as part of students' responsibility in the education partnership to inform themselves and to make themselves aware of what will be coming up and to reflect as to whether or not these things may pose challenge for them. 
then I also think that there should be more directive and perhaps more explicit statements or warnings in relation to what we describe as the most sensitive content. So, for example, that may include things like death and dying, perhaps suicide, any forms of violence or abuse, that those most sensitive topics would be managed more sensitively. And I would suggest that it should be a progressive strategy as well, so that we would take a more supportive and gradual approach in the early years of medical education, particularly year one, with a gradual withdrawal as students develop more autonomous self-care skills, but always knowing in the background that support is available to them. There can't be many topics that are greater opportunity to role model what one is trying to teach. And so I certainly hope that people you know, heed those suggestions that you just made and will, as you mentioned, anticipate that more research will come that will help us to better understand some of the holes that remain. Yes, absolutely. And I think the other point to mention is that it would be remiss of us to, you know, either undertake or continue this journey without actually establishing greater understanding of student perspectives and expectations and needs in this regard. And that is part of the work that I'm beginning to undertake now is actually speaking with students and finding out what their views are in relation to this important area. And hopefully that can add further evidence base for any approaches that we do take in future. Yeah, excellent. So definitely look forward to hearing about that work. And in the meantime, anybody who wants some more of the details about the paper that we've just been discussing, you'll find it in the November 2021 issue of Medical Education, written by Helen Nolan and Leslie Roberts, with the title Medical Educators' Views and Experiences of Trigger Warnings in Teaching Sensitive Content. Thanks again, Helen, for taking the time. And as I said, we look forward to seeing what comes next. Thanks very much, Kevin. It's been great to speak to you. 